Very special thank you to tonight's surprise sponsors, Mr. and Mrs. Yehuda Wachnin, in conjunction with Mr. and Mrs. Mayor Wachnin from Queens, in honor of the yard site of Mr. Wachnin's mother, Rosa Chaya Bat Esther. Her neshama should have an aliyah through our learning this evening. And also in honor of Yitzchak's birthday, 25 years old. And we have another significant birthday this evening, his 41st anniversary of his 50th birthday, Mr. Murray Markman. Looking forward to sharing in many more together. And I heard actually through the grapevine there's a third birthday here as well. Who's that? No pressure. <laughs> happy birthday. How old are we tonight? 19. 19. Okay, happy birthday. <laughs> Topic this evening is disconnected. This is a, a topic that's spoken about often in many different settings. What I'd like to do, though, tonight is speak about what the Torah says about being addicted to our phones or being addicted to other things in life that could be a distraction. And uh, I think like many areas of addiction, if you speak to the specialists in the field, they'll tell you, we always get together and we always talk about the problems. And everybody knows the problems well. Tonight we're going to do that exact same thing. We'll talk about the problems. But I'd also like to understand two more things. Namely, what are the sources? What, what leads to this type of behavior? We could glean that from the Parsha, from this week's Parsha, and actually next week as well. And I'd like to address what the, the Torah solution is to being a gavra, being a man, being able to have self-control and not allow ourselves to become addicted to distractions. The bad news is, there is not going to be a class next week. That's the bad news. And my, uh, my family and I made plans a long time ago to actually go away a few days next week to Orlando, so we're not going to be here. We look forward to uh, continuing two weeks from tonight. So what is the average time that we are connected per day? How often are we on our phones and our devices? And, and when, I, when I saw these numbers, I was astounded. More than 25% of millennials spend more than five hours per day on the phone, on their phone. And the interesting chart where it breaks it down, what do we spend most of our time with? 19% of those five hours, which is the highest, highest window, is Facebook. We have another 15% music, media, and entertainment. We have 11% gaming, 12% messaging. But more than five hours a day, people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, hard to define millennials, but around that age bracket, that's absurd. A new study was released in 2017, 
And they found, and this is not a surprise, that global consumers' dependence on their smartphones continues to grow. Besides 25% of millennials spending more than five hours a day on their smartphone, you have more than 50% of millennials spending at least three hours a day. So your average person who's 20, 30, 40 years old is spending three hours a day on their device. Baby boomers, people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, also hard to define that. The average baby boomer is also spending about three hours a day on their smartphone. So what are we doing about it? The APA, the American Psychological Association, they report that two-thirds of Americans will tell you that they are somewhat or strongly agree that periodically unplugging or taking a digital detox is important for their mental health. So most people will say, being able to have control over your device is a healthy thing to do. Now how many people actually do it? Only about 28% of those who say this report that they do anything about it. So we all know intellectually that there's something wrong with this picture. We all understand that the amount of time, the amount of life that's being sucked into these devices is not okay. What are we doing about it? By and large, the answer is nothing. There is a, a rabbi, Stephen Przansky, he's a well-known rabbi in Teaneck, the rabbi of congregation B'nai Yeshurun. He did something about it. And he wrote a letter to all of his congregants at the beginning of this secular year where he created a new policy in his shul. I'll read to you a couple of lines from his letter. He said, Rarely is there a weekday davening without a steady chorus of pings, dings, and rings informing bearers of those instruments that someone in the world outside desires their attention, and now. In the second paragraph, he says, Effective immediately in the new year, the entry of cell phones into shul is banned. Signs will be posted advising people of this change, and boxes will be placed outside each davening location. It's a, it's a big shul. They have many rooms where they daven. Allowing each bearer to place their turned-off phone inside before entering the shul to daven. It is no secret that we all struggle with kavana and davening. We try to focus, but it's very difficult. This reality was already noted in the Gemara, and so the last thing we need to do is to have a tool that's designed to distract us, be present and active during davening. Time during which we're supposed to focus on a relationship with God. Yet too often the mere presence of the phone has enticed holders to check their emails or respond to texts. He says it is already well known that the mere presence of a phone serves to distract both holders and anyone who sees or hears it. We had a drusha a few months ago on Shabbos going through some of those studies. It is unbelievable. The fact that there could be a phone on the table within my line of vision, even though I know the phone is turned off, it still distracts me. If use of such phones can be banned or deemed culturally unacceptable in courtrooms or movie theaters, it stands to reason that they have absolutely no place in shul. 
But the addictive qualities of these devices had led, has led many people to genuinely feel that they cannot part with them even for the 30 minutes that the morning or afternoon davening requires. Or if you're davening mincha by itself, the 8 minutes, or marav by itself, the, the, the 10 minutes. I can't be apart from my device. I feel like I'm just lacking in my, in my humanness. Using these devices as sedurim, and I've been saying this for years, can't I use it as a sitter? It's so much easier than a regular sitter. The screen is lit up behind it. I can make the words bigger. And the answer is, no, you can't use it as a sitter either. Because that exacerbates the problem. He says in, in his letter, we're blessed to have enough sidurim and a, variety, and a variety of versions that no one needs to use a phone as a sitter. And I'm definitely on that same page. He concludes that everything in life has its place but the place of the cell phone is not in shul. With blessings and friendships, I love you all, <laughs> but don't bring that into my synagogue. Rabbi Perzansky. What I'd like to explore for a moment is getting into our own heads. H how did this happen? If you were to speak to somebody in the 1990s, now for most of us, if you're turning 18 years old, I guess the 1990s is somewhat ancient history. But for many of us in this room, the 1990s, it wasn't that long ago. And we had cell phones to, to some degree. If you were to approach any normal human being who goes to shul once in a while to daven, and you were to ask them the question, what do you think about bringing your cell phone with you to shul? Good idea, bad idea. I think 99.4% would say, why would you have to have a phone with you in shul? <laughs> you know, the phone is, we have one in the house, we have one in the kitchen, we have one in the bedroom. I got a cell phone recently, I take with me, I keep it in the car sometimes. But why would you have to bring it into shul? That same person in 2018 feels naked without it. That same person doesn't know what to do with himself during Chazar Sashats. What else do I do? I'm just sitting here. Of course I have to just check the email. Something might be important. Somebody might be dying. I have to tend to them. So, so how, how did this, this evolution happen? The same people that would have thought of this as a, a sacrilegious thing to do now can't live without it. And the idea of not having it in my pocket or in the holder for the 30 minutes that I'm davening in the morning or for the 10 minutes I'm davening mincha it's so difficult to handle. How did that happen? I remember the first time I saw a Blackberry. I saw like my grandfather. I remember the first time I saw an automobile. <laughs> the first time I saw a Blackberry, it was actually after a funeral. And um, you know, people were gathering in the house together. And I saw this one guy playing with his phone. And then somebody whispered in my ear, you know, he's actually sending an email. Like, no way. <laughs> he's sending an email. So I went over to the fellow, and I was inquiring, how does this thing work? And he was showing me the whole gadget and how amazing it is. Even when he's not in the office, he could still be on top of his responsibilities. And we're there together in, in this, this Shiva environment, and he's returning emails. So the only thought that popped into my head, 
And I guess I wasn't so good at being Melamed's chus. I was just thinking, loser. Loser. <laughs> you have to return emails. You can't just wait till you get back to your desk. And now we fast forward to wherever we are now, and I'm doing the exact same thing. And if I don't have emails on my phone, so then I can't function. How did this happen? So I think there are two main sources for why we feel so attached to these devices. The first is, based on this week's Parsha, we have the special and somewhat strange mitzvah of the carbon Pesach. On the 10th of Nisan, Hashem instructs Moshe to tell all of the Jewish people that you have to bring a sheep inside of your home, you leave it there for four days, you get it ready, and then on the 14th of Nisan in the afternoon, you take it outside in public view, and you shech the sheep, you slaughter it, and you have a barbecue together with family and friends. That is the mitzvah of the Paschal Lamb. Now the, the wording of the Pasuk, the Torah says, V'yomra lehem, you Moshe should say to the Jewish people, Mishchu u'kuchu lachem tzon. Literally that means, Mishchu, draw forth, and u'kuchu lachem, and take for yourselves a sheep, and then slaughter that sheep. So the Medrash comes along and explains the Pasuk. The Medrash tells us, Kishahayu b'Mitzrayim is a source number five. When we were living in Egypt, Hayu ovdim avodas kuchavim, we were also worshipping idols like everybody else was. And then it adds the phrase, V'lo hayu ozvin osa, we couldn't let go of it. We were so attached to that culture, to that paganism. Lo hayu ozvin osa. Now we spoke about this last week, that one of the deities of the Egyptian culture was the, the, the seh, the sheep. So because they felt the sheep was somewhat supernatural, even though we did point out last week, they didn't really believe that, but at least they fooled themselves into believing that. So we also believe that to some degree. Says the Medrash, Mishchu yedeichem meyavodos kochavim. Pull your hands away from idolatry, because I know you guys still believe in that form of worship. Take for yourselves a sheep, and take their God and slaughter it in front of them and in front of you. The Rambam comes along in the Mor Nevuchim and he elaborates on this idea. And he says explicitly, the goal of this mitzvah of slaughtering the sheep was to cleanse us from those foreign ideologies. We were so mushpa, we were so influenced by that culture, we had to go and be proactive. Take the thing that they feel is God and kill it and destroy it and eat it and enjoy it. That was the mitzvah. Stop believing in that nonsense. So did this work? After going through this whole dramatic public display of, of putting down their deity, trying to prove to them, and more importantly to ourselves, that we don't believe in this stuff, did that cleanse us of those foreign ideologies going forward? And sadly, the answer is no. They were still there in the back of our minds. We, we kept on thinking about paganism. We kept on thinking about the, the religion that we learned in Egypt. And we find this 
in the times of Yeshua, at the very end of Sefer Yeshua, we have an amazing mitzvah. The, the Navi tells us, Va'ata yiru'es Hashem. Yeshua is, is saying his goodbye speech to the people, and he's charging them that you should have fear of Hashem, ve'ivdu oso besamim, and you should serve him with purity, u'be'emis, and with truth. V'hasiru es Elohim asher avdu avoseichem be'ever hanar, and you should get rid of the gods that your forefathers were worshipping on the other side of the river, the family of Avraham, Uba Mitzrayim, and those gods in Egypt. Get rid of all those idolatries. Ve'ibdu es Hashem, and only serve Hashem. So what, what's going on over here? Yeshua is about to pass away, and, and he thinks that the Jewish people, all this time later, now they're in Israel, now they're conquering the land, now they're settling the land, they still have idolatry with them, they still have little Buddhas. That sounds insane. And it is. The Metsudas David, one of the great commentators on the, on the Tanakh, he says they didn't have anything tangible. They didn't have a little Avodah a little idol in their pocket. However, Yeshua was telling them, I know it's still the way you think. I know your whole perception of life has been so influenced by what took place in Egypt, even though the majority of you standing here today were never in Egypt. But that's where you come from. That's your culture. That's your society. I know it's in your head. And therefore, I'm telling you, Get it out of your heart. You have to totally cleanse yourself of those foreign ideas that have been brainwashing you this whole time and try to accept the truth of Torah. So even after doing this public display of, of, of denying the gods of Egypt, it was still lurking in the back of our minds. We needed Yeshua to come along and tell us years later, stop thinking like an Egyptian. You're a Jew. So I think that's one major reason why we have such a hard time letting go of the cell phone. Simply because this is now normal. This is what everybody else does. And if everybody is doing something, then how can I not? Very difficult to break free. I've told this story before, but it's something that, that's haunted me for years. When I was in probably seventh or eighth grade, we had a group of friends, and uh, one of the kids in the group, his mother passed away when he was five or six. And it was obviously very traumatizing. So we would always make fun of each other, as good middle school boys do. And towards the beginning of the year, one kid said to that boy, well, at least I have a mom. And I was just floored by that. It's one thing to be making fun of each other, and you, know, you, you can't play basketball, and you're this and you're that, but to go there. So I was speaking with another friend of mine about how terrible that line was, and I can't believe he said it. How could he be so inconsiderate? Fast forward now, five, six months later, and the same boy that I was talking with about how, how terrible that line was said the exact same thing himself to that same boy. They got it back and forth. You're this, you're that. At least I have a mom. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Jared, how did you do that? Come on. The answer is, once I'm hearing it all around me, 
I don't care how evil it is. I don't care how stupid it is. I don't care how much of a distraction it is. I don't care that it, that it takes me away from life and relationships and everything else. If everyone is doing it, not only do I feel okay doing it, but I feel good about myself when I do it. When you're sitting there in the doctor's office, I was with Bracha, my younger daughter, eight years old, sitting in the pediatrician's office, and we're waiting our turn, and I pointed out to her, look around the room, there are a lot of teenagers there. What is every teenager doing right now? She looked around, nothing. So said, look closely, what are they all doing? Well, they're all playing on their phone. Exactly. How many of them are talking to their mother or father? None of them. That's normal. And we're not ashamed of it. And if anything, sometimes, even though we hate waiting, we've come to the point where if I have to wait for something, I'm okay because I kind of want to look at my phone anyway. So I don't mind waiting a few minutes. And the doctors and nurses love it. It's made their lives a lot easier. Imagine being behind the desk, you know, the receptionist before the invention of the smartphone, how miserable the job must have been, and now it's a breeze. Let them wait for three hours. They have what to occupy themselves with. There's an amazing, amazing essay by Rav Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro, known as the Eish Kodesh, in, uh, in his Sefer Tzav Veziruz, where he speaks about this idea of, of not allowing yourself to be pulled down by the world around you. This is source number nine on page four. We'll read some of the English together. Very powerful. As a torrent river surges forth, sweeping with it all that lies in its path, penetrating into deep recesses and washing away all buried things, so does the torrent of public opinion sweep along the individual mind. You may not know it. You may even deny it. But you have been brainwashed by common belief carried along perhaps more, perhaps less, you now think along these twisted paths. So stay away from the middle of the river. Don't be concerned with what people say. But this alone will not protect you. Even if you stand strong by yourself, it won't be enough. Because you cannot completely seclude yourself. Let's jump to the third paragraph. Nor can you remain static in this torrent river just by standing firm in your place. You must actively swim against the flow. You may not be successful in swimming upstream, but at least you will not be swept down by the flow. So it is with the spiritual life and the purity of the spirit that you have attained. You cannot retain them against the flow unless you continue to struggle for spiritual growth. You must swim upstream without respite, upward, onward against the flow. They may, there may be a limit to how far you can go, but at least you will not be drawn down by the flow. So says the Eish Kodesh, the only way to prevent ourselves from being brainwashed by what everyone else is doing is through being proactive. To stand here idly and let my life take its course on autopilot, I will by definition be swept along with everybody else. Unless I'm proactive, unless Hashem gives us the mitzvah, take the sheep, take it outside, and slaughter it, and watch the blood run from the neck, and then take the animal flesh and put it onto a skewer, and then roast the flesh over a... Any vegetarians here, by the way? <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Somewhat graphic. 
But you have to be proactive in order to rid yourself of those foreign ideologies. So I think that's one reason, that's one source to explain how we got to where we are. Everyone else is doing it, and therefore, it must be okay. Everyone else is taking out a cell phone during Chazar Sashat, during some point in davening, therefore, it must not be a big deal. Reason number two. There's, uh, there have been many studies now analyzing the habits of people texting while driving. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand for those people who text while they drive, and you were honest with me, I assume the majority of hands would probably be men. Irresponsible men. 98% of motorists who own cell phones and text regularly, they will tell you that they are aware of the dangers and how, and how incredibly irresponsible it is to text while driving. Yet three quarters of them admit to texting while driving. Right, last week I spoke about cognitive dissonance. What a great example. You have everyone in the world who owns a phone and texts all the time will all say, what a terrible thing to do. And if your child was doing it as they were driving, you would say, what are you doing? Put the cell phone down. You can't text and drive. And the next clip shows you driving by yourself to work and you know, get the coffee in one hand, texting in the other hand. So... Why don't people follow their own advice? And there are many reasons why. This was a study actually done by AT&T. Take a look at page 5. The, uh, the head of this study was a person by the name of David Greenfield. And uh, he said, based on their findings, there's clearly a huge discrepancy between attitude and behavior. Greenfield calls smartphones the world's smallest slot machines because they affect the brain in similar ways that gambling or drugs can. Dopamine levels increase as you anticipate messages, and that leads to higher levels of pleasure. Getting desirable messages can increase dopamine levels even further. That's the, 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 the fundamentals of addiction. When I anticipate and I look forward and I get the pleasure, then I anticipate more and I need it more. So you could be distracted theoretically by a cup of coffee or by a sandwich, but there's something unique to a smartphone. 43% of the people who said they text while they're driving even though they know it's not a smart thing to do, the reason they gave was, I want to stay connected to my family and friends. I need to be connected. I can't be in my own bubble. I can't be by myself or with myself. 30% of those people said, I'm so used to being connected to my phone, it's simply a habit that I use it in my car as well. It's a habit. So have you ever spoken to someone who by accident killed somebody as they were texting and driving. Now that person, who could have been that 30% of people saying the reason why I do it anyway is because it's a habit, and you speak to them after they killed the 16-year-old girl, so how do you feel about that habit? Can you ever sleep again for the rest of your life? 
But if we all know it's possible to have some kind of tragic outcome like that, how do we allow ourselves to do it? Based on habit? So get over the habit. And the answer is, habits are very hard to break. There's uh, also in next week's Parsha, by the way, uh, on page 6, I definitely uh, encourage you when you go home, take a look here. You have Dr. David Greenfield's smartphone compulsion test. I, I suggest you go through these questions and answer honestly and see where you fall out on the scale to know whether or not you're actually addicted to your smartphone. In next week's Parsha, we have the Jewish people complaining about the food. The Yomer Moshe of Aaron of Kolbanei Yisrael, Moshe and Aaron tell the entire Jewish people, Erev Yedatim, in the evening you will know, Ki Hashem hotzi aschem me'eretz Mitzrayim, that Hashem is the one who brought you out of Mitzrayim. He's the one in charge. Why are they specifying the evening? In the evening you will know, this is a reference to the falling of the mun and the, the quail, You'll be fed from heavens, and then you'll know Hashem is in charge of you. Don't blame me. Comes along the Svorno, one of the, the great commentators of the 1500s, and he says, Moshe at this point in history was actually davening. He said, Hashem, you've now informed me that you're going to feed the people in a miraculous way, and I'm grateful for that. However, he wrote so, I, I pray that it should be your will that when the food comes, it should come in a way where the Jewish people will now eat like mentioned, in, a, in an orderly fashion. They'll have bread for breakfast, they'll have meat for dinner, in a way that it's clear that you're in charge, because when the Jews were in Egypt, so obviously that was a whole different existence, and how would they eat? They didn't have three meals a day, they didn't have two meals a day, there was a pot of meat that was roasting by the fire, and whenever they could, whenever they had a free moment, they would just go by and grab a piece of meat, stuff it in their mouth, and continue working. They didn't have any meal schedule. Moshe turns to Hashem and says, now that you're in charge of what's being served, can you also make sure to have a time? Breakfast will be served from 6.30 to 9.30, and supper is served from 5.30 to 7.30. It sounds like from this forno that even after the Jews left Egypt, they were still eating like chickens from the garbage can. That's the expression used. Like chickens picking at the garbage. Why did they continue doing that? In Egypt it made sense. You had to do that because you were on someone else's time and you were constantly working. You had to grab a bite when you could. But now you're free men and you're, you're, you're living a life in this supernatural protection, eat breakfast at breakfast time and eat dinner at dinner time. What are you guys doing? And why couldn't Moshe just tell them, hey, stop it, stop it, eat like a mensch. Don't, don't nosh throughout the day. Why does he have to dive into Hashem? Moshe understood that this was so ingrained in their behavior from years and years of slavery that although they were freed physically, psychologically, they weren't able to, to now conduct themselves like free people. And they were still eating in the same way they were eating in Mitzrayim. They had the same behaviors. And Moshe understood that it was so deeply ingrained, just telling them to stop it might not do the trick. And that's why he had the daven. 
Hashem, please help them eat meals in the proper time. So I think reason number two why we find ourselves in this predicament is the koach hahergul, is the power of habit. Everyone's doing something that itself has a force, but the fact that I've now been doing something for so long, I have not been separated from my device now for years, so that becomes a habit that's super hard to break. Where do we actually see the discussion of a cell phone in a shul? Reference to in the Torah. The answer is next week's Parsha. During the most open miracle of history, the Torah tells us in number 13, the Jewish people were standing by the raging sea. This is very ironic, by the way. My phone is buzzing as I'm speaking right now. And I thought I turned it off. <laughs> the Jewish people went into the sea, onto the dry land. And water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. Now the word choma means wall, and according to the Vilna Gon, that should be spelled with a vav. Ches, vav, mem, he. Now we fast forward a few verses later, which the Torah seems to be pretty much saying the exact same thing. Uvnei Yisrael hocho biyabasha, the Jewish people went onto the dry land, but now it adds in a phrase, betoch hayom, in the middle of the ocean, and again it says, the water was a wall on their right and on their left. But this time, says the Vilna Gon, the word Choma is spelled without a Vav. It's just Ches Mem He. Now what does Ches Mem He spell? Chema. Chema means wrath or anger. So it's a strange thing that we have the Torah, at least in Pasuk Haftes, the second time it, it tells us that the Jewish people are going into the Yam, that there's a reference to anger. And it's clear from many sources, this is a reference to divine anger. Hashem was angry. Why was Hashem angry at a time like this? What a momentous occasion. The Jewish people are now crossing the Yamsuf. So says the Vilna Gaon, an amazing thing. He quotes a Gemara in Sanhedrin. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin speaks about a fellow named Micha. We learned about Micha at the end of Sefer Shoftim. Micha was a very interesting person. It sounds like he starts off as a good guy, and it's really through the, the influence of his mother, he gets swept away in idolatry, and eventually he, he opens up his own place, and he has a whole, a whole uh, pagan worship. However, the Gemara tells us he didn't start when he was already in Eretz Yisrael. He actually had the practice of worshipping idols back in Egypt, like other people did as well. And he brought his idol with him. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says, quoting the verse in Zechariah, the over beyom tzara, he shall pass through the sea of affliction, with affliction. What does that mean? You're passing through the sea with affliction? Amr of Yochanan, Zeb Pislo Shel Micha. This is a reference to the idol of Micha. 
Rashi explains that Micha made the idol back in Egypt. And uh, listen, you can't bring everything with you. Each person's allowed one carry-on and one check-on, and that's it. So how do you, how do you organize your things? So the, the one, one possession he couldn't get rid of was his pestle, the idol he made back in Egypt. So he took that with him. And, and the Gemara is telling us that he was holding that with him as the Jewish people were crossing the Yamsuf. As you see this open, vivid miracle where every single Jewish person had the level of prophecy like the greatest prophets ever to live, and there he's walking, wow, wow, petting the Buddha. Wow. <laughs> How in the world is that possible? That's a man who's bringing his cell phone into shul. <laughs> You're in the middle of the Kodesh Kedoshim. You're in the middle of just you and Hashem. We're going to be singing songs about this forever. And you're walking in the middle of the sea with your little getchka. What are you thinking? Says the Vilna Go, and that explains these two psukim. It's clear from different sources that the tribe of Don, Micha was part of the tribe of Don, they were the last ones to go into the sea. So the first Pasuk in Chav Beis was telling us that B'nai Yisrael, the rest of the Jewish people, they went into the sea on dry land, and there was a choma, it was a wall, there's no reference to anger. Chav Tess is referring to the, the stragglers, the tribe of Don, because Micha was in that tribe, they were the last ones to go into the Yamsuf, and it's no longer choma, but it's chema, there's wrath, there's disappointment. Can you imagine what Hashem is thinking? Micha, what are you doing? Leave the idol back in Egypt. So wh- why didn't he leave the idol in Egypt? And I think the answer is, he had both of these reasons. He was living in a culture where everybody else was doing it, and therefore it was so normal, it was so accepted. And at the same time, it was his own habit. He was doing it for years. This was his thing. It's not easy and it's almost impossible to give up a habit to the point where Moshe has to daven for the Jewish people, otherwise it might not happen. So bringing this back to our initial discussion about disconnecting, right? the, the phrase now in the world is disconnecting in order to connect. And that's a very cute <laughs> phrase. But it's so much more than that. Nowadays it's disconnecting in order to stay sane. Just, just in order to live, in order not to spend five hours a day on my device. What's the so What's the strategy? We spoke about the problem. We spoke about two sources of the problem. What's the solution? The solution is you take the smartphone, you take it outside after four days of being in your home, you slaughter it and you burn it. And if that's not practical, I, I think we have to glean the hashkafa. We have to understand the Torah philosophy from the carbon Pesach. We have to be proactive. We cannot trust ourselves because we're all human beings. And we all fall prey to what's viewed as normal, and we also fall prey to habit. The only thing we could possibly do to have a fighting chance for ourselves and for our children, because whatever we're doing is having a major impact on the kids. We can't give them a musr shmooz. We can't speak to them and tell them you're spending too much time on your phone and you have to have limitations and you have to have guidelines. We ourselves don't have guidelines. 
And if we're laying in bed with them, and I can't think of anything else to do, and I can't speak to the child, so I just go on my phone to look at the news, or we're sitting on the couch together with them, and, and I just take out my phone to look at an email, we're sending a very clear message. This is okay. We're sending a message that we don't have to relate to each other. I'll do my thing and you'll do your thing. We'll both be absorbed in our own digital reality and we're better off that way. Who needs you? So as parents, as educators, as rabbis, I've heard speeches on this before. And I feel bad saying this, but sometimes the person who gives the speech is just as addicted as everybody else is. I could speak about it eloquently though. We have to do something about this. And there's so many different cases, obviously besides shul. When it comes to our personal policy, I'm working with Mr. Yehuda Wasser to find some of those boxes to put outside the shul. So everyone will have a safe place to, to put their cell phone before walking in. Baruch Hashem, we don't have that big of a problem because we've made this a focus throughout the last five and a half years. And then Baruch Hashem, it's, it's okay. But I think we should all strive to be on the level that Rabbi Przansky was talking about. We can't bring it in with us to shul. And when we do, we should picture ourselves as Micha walking through the Yamsuf with a little Buddha in the pocket just rubbing him saying, look at this, this is an amazing shul, this is an amazing Yamsuf. Can't bring it in with us. But just like we don't bring it into the sanctuary when it's us and Hashem, we have to be so careful to limit its usage in the sanctuary of relationships. Not just talking about it, not just speaking about guidelines, but being super proactive. There's an app nowadays that you could put on your phone that if you're moving more than 15 miles per hour, you will not receive, or you will, but it won't inform you of getting any texts, emails, tweets, anything else. That's an app everyone should have. Because when I hear the little buzz as I'm driving on the highway, even though I just read all about this, it's still enticing and I want to see who's trying to get a hold of me. So we have to think practically. What can we do? How can we go out and shech the carbon Pesach in a way where we're having this time, 5.30 to 7 o'clock, where the phone is not just in a different room, but it's turned off. We have to limit the Nisayot. The Maktanas Nisayot means we can't just trust ourselves that we'll overcome the Nisayot and the challenge, but we have to do things to mitigate the challenge and make sure it's not a constant thing that's distracting me from life, from Hashem, and from relationships. Sure.